Welcome to the New Testament Daily with Jerry Dearman, where Jerry reads a chapter from the New Testament and gives us key insights and life applications along the way. For more information about the Solid Life Journal and reading plans, visit solidlives.com. And now, let's get into today's reading. The book of Titus, chapter 1. Here's what it says. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Boy, he started with a mouthful, didn't he? So notice again, Paul, he starts with himself, unlike in our Western culture where we put our signature at the end. They would put it at the beginning. I kind of like it better myself because you know who's writing. But notice he said, Paul, a bondservant. Instead of saying an apostle this time, first he says a bondservant. It's not the only time he said it, but in other words, a bondservant is someone who willingly and intentionally bonded themselves to be a servant or a slave to their master a bondservant. And so Paul is saying, oh, I willingly serve the Lord. I willingly have committed myself for the, all of my life, in fact, all of eternity, to serve Lord, the Lord. So Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So an apostle means a sent one. An apostle of Jesus Christ, he's sent by Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. The faith of God's elect. Now, What is God's elect? Well, there's a doctrine in the Bible that God has elected certain people on the earth who live on the earth and will live on the earth until Jesus comes back, who will be saved. Uh, Some people, of course, take that to the extreme to mean that only those people uh, are the ones that Jesus died for. And he didn't die for the sins of the rest of the world. And God really is not giving the whole world an opportunity to be saved because he already knows who he elected. Well, it's a little confusing sometimes when you look at these various passages. But when you put them all together, and like it says in Romans 8, I believe the 29th verse, it says, For whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. For whom God foreknew, he also predestined. So God didn't just elect people because he said, I like you, but not you. I like that one, but not the other one. No, but God foreknew who had hearts and would would be willing to receive the gospel. And he elected them and wanted to secure them, predestined them to secure them for salvation. Why? Because the days are evil and there's much temptation. And like Jesus said in Matthew 24 about the tribulation period, he said, unless those days were shortened, even the elect would not be saved. See, so just right there, just because God elected, that doesn't mean that our own free will that he gave us cannot be exercised. See, God didn't take away the free will of man. See, but God knew who would, he foreknew, and so he elected. So did Jesus die for the sins of the whole world? You better believe he did. The Bible says he did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's not the only case. Like 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the Lord doesn't just love or want to save. Jesus didn't just pay for the sins of the elect. But 
it is uh, still true that because God knows the future, he knows who it is who will end up being saved. He has elected them. They are part of his elect. And so Paul is saying, uh, I'm a bondservant of God. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect. So there's an acknowledgement here by him and by other texts of scriptures that we know that because God's foreknowledge is precise, we know that there will be some that are saved and many that are not. Jesus said, broad is the uh, path and wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many are going into that. But uh, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. So there's an acknowledgement, even though salvation has come to everyone and it's for everyone, the majority of people, unfortunately, will not receive it and will not be saved. They're not part of God's elect. So he says, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. So, uh, it, by the way, the sentence is not finished. It goes right into verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. I, I really want to get to this one. And, uh, and a few other things in this passage, so I, I'm going to move it along. So notice verse 2, in hope of eternal life, listen to this, which God, who cannot lie, promised, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised. So God, who cannot lie, promised eternal life for who? For those who put their faith in God. He's talking uh, still about the faith of the elect and which accords to godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So notice, before time began. Well, when did time begin? Time began in Genesis chapter 1 when God made the days, the weeks, the months, the seasons, when God set all that in order, how the earth rotates on its axis, how it orbits around the sun, that whole deal, God set in order. God created that in Genesis chapter 1. You can go look at it. That's when time began. There was no time before that. So before time began, God made a promise. What does that mean? Well, somebody said, well, how did he make a promise of eternal life way back then? You remember that the Bible says that Jesus is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Well, see, because God knows the future, even though he created man, he did know that man would use the free will that God gave him, talking about Adam and Eve, to sin. And so already in advance of that, Jesus had committed himself to redeem, to, to be the Savior, to die on the cross and such. So the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. And so it says here that we have hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So let me say it a different way. God promised eternal life before time began, and he cannot lie. He's going to keep that promise to give eternal life to whoever commits to receive the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God. But I also want you to notice the general principle here. It says, in hope of eternal life, listen to this part, which God who cannot lie promised. God who cannot lie promised. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that this doesn't just pertain to one promise. Every promise of God. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God in Jesus are yes 
and in him, amen, so be it, let it be done. So in other words, all the promises of God, he cannot lie. He promised. They're not just divine options. A lot of people think, well, the promise is in the Bible, but you never know if God's going to do it. You know, you just trust him to make the decision. Well, that's not the way the Bible's written. That is the way that man has taught it because man is trying to reconcile what happens in life to what God's word says. God's word is absolute, like their promises. But what happens in life doesn't always look like that. And so in trying to reconcile that, often teachers and preachers, unfortunately, will compromise what it actually says in the Bible and give you the impression that God can overrule his own word because he's a sovereign God, forgetting that he was a sovereign God when he gave the promise. And he hasn't learned anything since. So there's no new information by which God could say, oh, well, that's what I said then. But now in this situation, no, he knew about this situation when he made that promise. See, and it says God who cannot lie promised before time began. Folks, all the promises of God are true and they're valid. And if any time a promise does not come to pass, it is never because God just decided that he's not going to bring it to pass because of some other reason that he doesn't explain in the word. No, it's always going to be something like uh, when I did the study on reasons why Christians don't receive. And we just went through the Bible and documented all the different places where the promise of God, the will of God did not come to pass. And you know, not one time ever in the Bible is there even a hint that, well, the, the people of God did everything right, but God just decided he was going to teach them something. Or God just decided that because of something in the future, he was not going to bring it to pass because it would be adverse for them. Never, not one time. God always keeps his part. It was always something else, like the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Like Peter said, be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Well, that's 1 Peter 5, 8. And then he says, resist him. In other words, don't let him devour. Well, sometimes we don't resist him. Sometimes we're not sober. Sometimes we're not spiritually alert. And so there are so many reasons. I found at least 30 reasons in the Bible, and not one of them is that God just decided. In fact, all over the Bible, it says he, he won't just decide to break his promise. No, and, and this is one of those places here, God who cannot lie promised. <laughs> if he promised, he is committed to do it, and he cannot lie. It's settled. I just love that. All right, here we go. God who cannot lie promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, manifested, revealed, uh, brought to light, brought out into the open, manifested his word through preaching. Somebody said, yeah, but what about the Bible? Well, remember this, that yes, back in Paul's day, when Paul is writing this letter to Titus, they had what we call the Old Testament. That was the the Holy Scriptures. But they didn't have the New Testament, but God was bringing this out through preaching. And here he is preaching really to Titus. And guess what? It, it was captured, corroborated, included as Scripture. And so God is revealing his word through preaching, through the preaching of the apostles, through the preaching of Paul and others. And so it says God has manifested his word through preaching. Well, even though we have the book now, the complete book of Old and New Testament, well, still this word is manifested and revealed to people through preaching and teaching. Jesus told all of us, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so this is how people 
come to knowledge of what God's Word says, is we go and proclaim it. Preaching is proclaiming. Teaching is explaining. And so he says, it's made manifested, his Word is made manifested through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So Paul is taking this very personally. He's saying this preaching of his Word, in other words, all these books, he wrote about half of the books of the New Testament. Well, he said, this was committed to me to preach these revelations that God has given. And thank God that all these books were included in the Bible because Paul uh, was able to bring such revelation and insight through his preaching, through his letters and such. So it goes on to say, he finally gets down in verse 4 to say who he's writing to. He says, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, talking about a son uh, spiritually, a true son in our common faith. And then here's the typical greeting, grace, mercy, and peace. Sometimes he just says grace and peace, but other times he says grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let me just remind you, I believe with all of my heart, when they did these greetings, those that, that understood, they didn't merely just say it like, you know, hey, bless you, have a nice day, how you doing today, you know, like a normal greeting, that they really were releasing grace, mercy, and peace as they were speaking these words. And, of course, it's the grace, mercy, and peace that come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then he gets down to the practical side with Titus, and he says, For this reason I left you in Crete. Crete is an island over there in the Mediterranean. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I've commanded you. Really like this. Titus, I've le I left you in charge as my representative on the island of Crete. Obviously, Paul's been there. He's ministered in various cities there. But he said, I'm leaving you in charge. He said, and Here's, here are the two things I want you to do. I want you to set in order the things that are lacking. Discover what's lacking in these various churches, in these various cities on this island. Set in order the things that are lacking. There's always something that gets out of alignment. When you get people involved, there's always something out of alignment. It needs to be set in order. We need to bring the truth and set things in order. So set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. Now today, typically we would call them pastors. But nonetheless, they're, they're called elders. People who are older, older in the faith, more mature in the things of God, more mature in the scriptures. And he said, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. In other words, I'm rehearsing this. I'm repeating myself because I told you in person likely. And now I'm telling you again, appoint elders in every city. You, they, you, you can't wait for elders to come from another city in two weeks. No, we need elders available. We need people that can speak into situations and make decisions and bring unity and such. Appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Verse 6, if a man is blameless, now he's going to get into the qualifications of an elder. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, in other words, wasteful living, or living with an arrogance that can't take uh, direction from overseers and such. So he's saying that's a disqualifier. Verse 7, for a bishop, this is an overseer, for a bishop must be blameless. So in other words, he's saying that elders will be bishops. El elders will be overseers. OK, 
Okay, so for a bishop must be blameless. Notice, not just innocent. Innocent means you didn't do anything wrong. Blameless means you were so far removed from it, no one would even blame you. That's how you live that your life. That's how you carry yourself. So for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God's steward. What does that mean? That means you don't own the ministry. It's not your ministry. It's not your flock. They're not your people. They belong to the Lord. Jesus bought them with a price. No, you're a steward. You're, you're doing this on behalf of God. So the flock belongs to the Lord. So goes on to say, a steward of God, not self-willed. Oh, we can all be so strong sometimes, can't we? Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded. Not just sober, but sober-minded. In other words, level-headed, able to think clearly and straight, just doing what's right with justice, holy, living a pure life, self-controlled, keeping control of your ap- your fleshly appetite, your carnal cravings and such, what your mouth wants to say but should not say. See, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, encourage people, and convict those who contradict. See, these elders, these bishops that Titus needs to appoint need to be able to bring resolve to conflicts and need to even be able to confront and bring conviction to the heart of people who are in opposition, who are critical, who are insubordinate, not following leadership, not staying in unity, they're gossiping. And so he said, look, we do want to exhort. He said, but sometimes you have to con." convict those who contradict. Watch this. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers. Folks, I tell you what, this is going on today. Everybody wants to just freely give their opinion and say some of the most ruthless and even hurtful things. And so Paul's addressing this, saying, boy, elders have to confront these things. So there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers, just speaking their mind, just rattling off things that they shouldn't, uh, and deceivers, people that know that they're not telling the truth, but they're trying to deceive people, especially those of the circumcision. He's talking about the Jewish people back in that day, whose mouths must be stopped. So he's saying, appoint these elders because these elders need to stop their mouths. These elders need to shut that up and stop that. Why? Because those words are destroying unity, destroying the anointing of God. God, in fact, Ephesians, I believe it's chapter 4, you remember, says, uh, watch your mouth. And it says, don't grieve the Spirit of God. Well, when we just let people speak their minds and speak these things like the world speaks, Oh, it grieves the Spirit of God. So he said, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households. I mean, they're just, they're just taking whole households in deception and luring them into this kind of behavior and attitude, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Oh, we have the love of money in here, dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet, of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. 
This testimony is true. Now, that seems a little far-fetched for Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to say, yeah, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. But I tell you what, God's word is truth. So you know what this says? Just like many cultures, many nations who have adopted certain characteristics, certain things that they do, that may not be appropriate. There are many nations that may not have even had the gospel, and they're doing things with one another and such because they don't have the truth that are perverse, and it's just part of their culture. And we look at that and we say, well, yeah, they've never received the gospel. But to say, yeah, they all do this, that's not an exaggeration. And so back in this day, Paul was saying, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, this is the way Cretans are. And Paul said, this testimony is true. That is part of their culture, that they live like this, and they, they haven't seen this as wrong because it was cultural. And so it goes on to say in verse 13, uh, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Notice, here's a cultural thing, and yet it does not align to godliness. So he said, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth to the who turn from the truth. So notice this. He's saying, appoint these elders, and these elders are going to serve as bishops or overseers. But he said, one of the things they're going to have to do is they're going to have to correct and exhort, but some people are not going to listen. Some people are going to push back and they're going to argue and such. And he said they need to be eventually rebuked sharply. Now, that's not something you start with, but if people don't listen and they just refuse to receive the instruction, the correction, the exhortation and such, then eventually they need to be confronted because they're so off and what they're doing. Somebody said, well, why don't you just let them be? Well, we can let them be, but inside the church, it destroys other people. And that's what Paul's concerned about. Paul's concerned that we let it go and have weak leadership and destroy all the new believers because they end up thinking this is acceptable. And this kind of disunity, criticism, etc., is appropriate, but it's not. God hates it. If you ever look up complaining, <laughs> In the Bible, you'll find out God does not like complaining and criticism. And so it goes on to say, verse 15, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. So he's saying here that uh, some of these people that he's talking about that need to be sharply rebuked, he's saying they're so corrupted in their mind, they believe what they're arguing is right. He said, to the pure, all things are pure. You can bring a scripture and they say, oh, you know, you're right. But to somebody who's already been compromised, defiled, they've already decided, I'm going to argue my point and stand my ground. I don't care what scriptures you show me. I don't care how mature or loving the elders are or how respected they are, trusted they are, who appointed them, what position they serve. I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to argue this out. I'm not going to buckle and such. He said, yeah, these people have been defiled. These people have been defiled. And, uh, and because of that, they don't believe anything's pure. You can give them pure scripture. Nope, they won't accept it. And so it says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. Boy, let's not be there. And if you have 
uh, any suspicion that you might be there, stop and just say, Lord, forgive me. And Lord, heal me of this. I don't want to be like that. I want to be humble and I want to be compliant and I want to be obedient to you. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. That's the way the chapter ends. They profess to know God, but in, in they profess to know God but in works, they deny him. So he's saying, you can talk all you want to, but the way that you act, the way that you speak with other people, behave and such, he said, you're denying God and you're being abominable. This is like a detestable thing to God. You're being disobedient to God and to leadership and you're disqualified for every good work. Folks, let's not be there. Let's not be there. In fact, Father, we pray right now in Jesus' name that we would not be among those that need to be rebuked or even corrected. Lord, we want to correct ourselves. We want to allow your word to correct us as we read it every day. Lord, we want to be humble before you, and we want to be right and pure in your eyes. So thank you for your word, which is confronting us and helping us to be the people that we're called to be. We prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the New Testament Daily with Jerry Dearman. And thank you to those of you who have partnered with Solid Lives to help get this daily podcast and other resources like it to thousands of people around the world. If you would like to partner with Solid Lives, visit solidlives.com give. To find out more about the ministry of Solid Lives, how you can be a part of this church planting and disciple making movement, or for more great teachings and resources by Jerry, visit solidlives.com. We also want to invite you to check out Jerry's other podcast called The Jerry Dearman Podcast. Here, Jerry shares with us at least weekly from God's Word, challenging us and equipping us to fulfill the amazing plan that God has for our lives. You can find links to this podcast as well as Jerry's YouTube channel online at solidlives.com. Thank you again so much for joining us and we'll see you right here tomorrow as we jump into the New Testament Daily with Jerry Dearman.